the Minor Constellations podcast. Conversations with engaged thinkers and doers. I'm Kathleen Sampson. And I'm Yaratia. And we're doctoral fellows at the research training group Minor Cosmopolitanisms, which hosts this podcast. In this second episode of our Palestine-Israel special, we talk to Azar Dakwa, a PhD candidate in political and social thought at the Brussels School of International Studies at the University of Kent. We start with the events which took place in Palestine-Israel in May, and the conversation centers around an article that he wrote with Raif Zreik entitled, What's in the Apartheid Analogy? Palestine-Israel Refracted. Taking this article as our point of departure, we talk about the proliferation of the apartheid discourse. We ask, what's between South Africa and Palestine-Israel? And explore the differences between settler colonialism, apartheid, and occupation. So thank you, Azar, for joining us uh, to this conversation. We are very excited uh, to have you here with us. I personally am very excited as I met you for the first time around nine nine years ago uh, as part of our activities at the Minerva Humanities Center, from which I also know uh, Raif Zrik, with whom you wrote the article, which is at the center of our talk today, What's in the Apartheid Analogy? Palestine-Israel Refracted. Now... It seems that the article that touches upon the question of the apartheid analogy is more relevant than ever. It was published a year ago, but just lately it feels that this analogy gained more traction, at least the way it seems in the Israeli discourse. Just some days ago, a conference took place at the Israeli parliament entitled After 54 Years from Occupation to Apartheid. And it was hosted by a member of the Knesset, Mosi Raz from Meretz, and Aida Tuma Suleiman from the Joint List. In addition to that, and just to show this kind of growing traction of, of, of this analogy, in the aftermath of the events which took place this May, Michael Sfarad wrote an article for The Guardian where he explains why the apartheid analogy is gaining more and more currency within the Israeli mainstream discourse, and especially the Israeli progressive left. Although, as you would also say or said, uh, Palestinians were talking about it for more than 20 years now. So this seems to me at least like a paradigm shift, or at least from an Israeli point of view. Would you agree or how do you see things? Thank you very much for hosting me. Um, I'm really happy and glad to talk to you, especially about my article with Raif Zreik, What's in the Apartheid Analogy? I'll try to clarify what we did, but put the article in relation to the recent events that are occurring and speaking about the so-called now paradigm shift in understanding the conflict, quote-unquote. So where to start? So the recent event, uh, especially because uh, they've happened in, throughout the entirety of the land, from the river the, to the sea, from the north to the south, all the colonially imposed barriers and, you know, if you wish, the fragmentation of the Palestinian people into uh, loca- locales and 
administrative regions and statuses have fallen down and, you know, they have risen up to show their unity, to say that actually we are all um, in one way or another suffering from the same wrongdoings perpetrated by the state of Israel, wherever we are, whether we are citizens formally in Israel proper, so to speak, uh, whether in the West Bank under occupation and under sort of the civil control of, of the Palestinian Authority, whether in Jerusalem as occupied residents, whether, you know, as Gazans, whereby, you know, Israel denies any responsibility towards us. So it's, um, it's quite a scene. And looking at this from the outside, not being there, people quite see that there is here something which one can liken, if you want, to, to apartheid. So in this sense, the apartheid analogy is becoming much more relevant to, to the actual events on the ground. So from the Israeli point of view, Israeli human rights organizations have been moving to this apartheid analogy, adopting it more and more and shying away that the situation is occupation recently. But this is not a big news, I would say, because things have been shifting and the international discourse mainly and international legal and human rights discourse for two decades almost to, to this direction, despite the major efforts put by political players to maintain uh, sort of the occupation talk going on and the two-state solution in the horizon as something that would end the situation of occupation. So um, Michael Sfard, who is a famed Israeli human rights lawyer, you said he, he has written this op-ed in The Guardian, but he has written as well last year uh, a report Yeshdin, a legal position claiming that Israel commits the crime of apartheid in the occupied West Bank last year, I believe in June 2020. And B'Tselem, the biggest Israeli human rights organization, issued an eight-page statement claiming that the Israeli regime as such, not just Israel's presence in the West Bank, represents a you know, crime of apartheid, you know, the apartheid regime from the river to the sea. And on top of that, you have Human Rights Watch, one of the biggest you know, human rights watchdogs in the world, published a huge report in April, just two months ago, convicting Israel of the crimes of apartheid and persecution. So you can understand this event in the Knesset because of these you know, dynamics as well that are happening in Palestine, Israel, uh, around, around the apartheid discourse. But this is, I would say, um, fine. It's a discursive event. Because it's as if what the impression we get is that, you know, following the debate that was in the Knesset and what has been going on last year, Yeshdin, B'Tselem and Human Rights Watch, you know, that it just took off really in Israel just now. But there were two other reports, very important ones, from 2009 of the Human Social Science Council of South Africa, led by Virginia Tilly and Richard Falk. And there was another one from of Esqua in 2017, which they had to retract. The UN just vetoed the report. And, and that one also of the 2009 was, was attacked blatantly and, uh, and actually viciously. So it is also the question who's, who's using this currency, yeah? who's speaking in, this, in the language of apartheid and deploying the apartheid analogy that, that also gives it weight to be taken up uh, in the general discourse and becoming proliferate, you know, and become more prevalent. So I think this is an important comment 
comment because it shows as well the politics of uh, <laughs> the circulation of certain terms in order to describe the reality and, and diagnose it and eventually prognose it. So, you know, you're, you're kind of critical here then about um, these, as you say, discursive events, these discussions about apartheid that are kind of proliferating in some ways but you know nevertheless you've you've written this article and you know in some cases before some of these took place but um i'm just wondering what interests you when you what did interest you when you began writing this article with Ralf Zreg in what sense did you want to participate in or maybe make an intervention in this discourse so what interests me what interested us in the paper and what keeps to interest me as well personally is not the proliferation of an apartheid discourse, you know, according to international legal standards. And, you know, to, as if to wait for some uh, international uh, discursive mobilization to authorize and license people's lived reality of, of apartheid, which has been uh, there from the inception of the State of Israel in 1948. So it's more about our lived experience as Palestinians and about this structure of experience, which we turned after uh, Irving Goffman, not just the fact of social life that you have apartheid, which is basically what we say, what it means politically in terms of political consciousness. It is not simply separation and segregation and domination that happens to a group. It's a separation, segregation and domination that happen to a people against the background of unity. You have to understand that what is being cleaved in, in one way or another, your apartness, yeah, happens in a unifying frame of significance. And yeah, we wanted just to, in one way or another, to withstand the pressure of the international discourse, which is driven by external legal standards and speaking about apartheid in Palestine, Israel. And we wanted to actually elaborate something that stems out of our experience, how we experience, how Palestinians in their different localizations or the Israeli-imposed localization experience their apartness. Sorry to jump in, but really before we start delving into our conversation, I want to just put something um, that we all like to begin or start our conversation with the basic law, which was enacted in 2018, which basically declared Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. And the reason why I bring it now up front is because you begin your article with uh, this law and I want you to say something. Did it change your premise? Did it clarify things for you? Did it make you feel um, more strongly about using this uh, apartheid analogy? Not really. It just reinforced what, uh, what we've been saying, yeah. The nation-state law, uh, not for the first time, probably for the second time, because the first time was with the law of return, probably. But for the second time in the history of Israeli legislation, yeah, crystallized Jewish supremacy, but much more than this, I would say, because it, it doesn't recognize even the mere existence of a Palestinian political subjectivity. It's not even written in the text. We are not there. There's nothing, not even Palestinian, not anything else. It's the denial. It really represents... In a basic law, which is a constitutional law, yeah, not just epistemic, you know, erasure. Uh, it is just, it's more, it's the denial, it's the complete denial of collective political subjectivity that exists in between the river and the sea. So, yeah, it brought things to a point where 
you cannot deny that actually the regime Israel operates and its legal corpus, yeah, even all those ambiguous laws where discrimination and domination are not written explicitly. So it just clarified everything. And in light of the nation state basic law, one can clearly see that the regime is just a kind of apartheid. Yeah, it's an apartheid regime. So, so in, you know, of course, it's that you're, you're just saying now that it's so clearly an apartheid regime. But, um, you know, you mentioned in the article also that the apartheid analogy doesn't substitute or replace uh, the settler colonial paradigm or way of thinking about the situation in Palestine, Israel, um, but rather it complements it and it particularizes it. So can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, this is a very important question. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very complex discourse, this discourse. Just I want to, sim- to simplify it, yeah, because there are people are really fighting. It is, is it apartheid? Is it occupation? Is it settler colonial? Is it whatever it is? That's why I use the, the, I use the term and I was very precise with the use of the term. And I said Israel as a state operating a regime of apartheid. Let me put it this way. Like what characterizes the existential, if you wish, ethos of colonial settlers is that the colonial settlers have no commitment to probably key feature of the paradigmatic logic of the nation state, which is transforming enmity within the borders of your de facto territory, you know, the territory you're ruling. Transforming this enmity between the nation and the other, let's say, uh, adversarial one, you know, from enmity to adversariety, as, you know, anthropologist and theorist Hassan Hajj puts it. This means that the settler colonist does not aim to share uh, a ground or a sense of common community and society with the colonized. So they see them as enemies, not as adversaries. This lack of commitment uh, to a single society that is part and parcel of the separateness, yeah, quote-unquote, that is created, is at the heart of the colonial settler world between the reality, even the lived reality, if I, I would say, of the colonizer and that of the colonized, and, and which manifests itself in a number of variations, you know, on the apartheid theme, if you wish, yeah? So historically speaking, all colonial settler societies produce apartheid-like realities, yeah, or tendencies. The U.S., Jim Crow, what was Jim Crow, yeah? It's a settler colonial state, and then Jim, you had Jim Crow, yeah? Australia, yeah? South Africa, yeah? <laughs> like, so basically what I'm saying is that all settler colonial societies produce apartheid-like tendencies in the sense that the, the regime, their modalities of rule would have to rely on, on methods of apartheid, yeah? Which, which basically create divisions between two different worlds within a single national space, within a single frame, rather than to divide a single national world, yeah, into two. This is the point, I think. And, you know, in terms of stateness, which is basically the, the crucial and, and the fundamental features of what makes a state a state, the Israeli state, which is army, bureaucracy, and so on and so forth, the Israeli state is committed to settler colonialism, is a settler, settler colonial state. The executive arms of the state are committed to the settler colonial principle. Now, you have a certain demographic political reality that you need to manage 
especially with the state of Israel, you know, the Ur principle is demography. And for this, you know, you need to deploy modalities of settler colonial domination like occupation and apartheid. Now, the apartheid is a more generalized framework than occupation because occupation, because of its definition, it has to be enforced by military force, you know, and so on. And then you are subject to certain conventions, international conventions, so on. So it's it's the occupation discourse is suffused to a large extent uh, with international uh, legal, you know, language. Whereas apartheid, you know, it just uh, it stems out of the internal dynamics, you know, and takes shape and form through through legislation, but also through practices. Mainly in Israel, that's in Israel it manifests itself through practices. So, in 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 this sense, I would I would say Israel is a settler colonial state which operates an apartheid regime and has been operating an apartheid regime since its inception. So when you say apartheid regime, and when we use the word apartheid, especially for me coming from South Africa, what immediately comes to mind, of course, and probably for most people, is, of course, South Africa. And, you know, in your article, you are exactly exploring the analogy to South Africa. So can you maybe just explain to us in short what you were trying to do with this comparative framework in the article? Okay, we end in the article to offer a very general frame that does two things at the same time. That it would allow us to view Palestine-Israel as one overarching geopolitical unit, because that's de facto the situation. Israel controls everything. This is one. The second is to conceive of the Zionist, if you wish, settlement project as a unity since it began, while leaving enough room to distinguishing between the different stages of a project and the different shapes it took territorially and politically. Israel proper, what is called, like between the 1949 armistice lines, the West Bank and Gaza, Palestinian refugees, which are completely left out of the equation. And we talk about in the article who's entitled to politics at all. So in short, the article tried on the one hand to be general enough to capture the overall picture. And on the other, it tried to be nuanced enough to account for historical and political differences, which is a very hard task to do in short article. But but probably more importantly, the article aimed to draw an analogy that explains a very long historical process, both on the level of brute facts and on the level of frames of reference that conceptualize and organize the experience in hist- of historical epochs, which shape to a large extent the political imagination of both Palestinians and Israeli Jews, but also international public opinion, if you wish. So throughout the article, historical comparisons are employed, I would say, as historical device to help illuminate the workings of the juxtaposition of the two cases of, of apartheid South Africa and Palestine Israel in relation to the fact or the question of apartheid as a modality of rule. So the article withhold as far as possible any moral or legal judgment. Whether Israel is committing a crime of apartheid or persecution as it has been defined by international law or not, isn't really our our focus, though our tone is quite clear in the article. But, but by bracketing the legal and moral judgment, you know, we try to make space for understanding the historical and political processes that are manifested, I would say, and this we didn't clarify it enough in the article, in hegemonic discourses and hegemonic, basically official discourses on multiple levels, the political economy, language, religion, or if you wish, political theology, and the geopolitics. 
Right. So, so your, your comparative framework includes these four factors that you were just mentioning now. And in the article, you suggest that these were crucial both to the establishment as well as the demise of the apartheid regime in South Africa. But what you also show in the article is how these factors problematize the comparison to Palestine-Israel. Um, can you walk us through this argument and what distinguishes the South African case from the Palestine-Israel case. So in South Africa, there was a liberal settlement after all. And that's 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 crucial here. I want probably to, to talk a bit. Because of the four factors we examined in the article, which distinguished the South African case from the Palestinian-Israeli case. In South Africa, the demography wasn't settled. And it wasn't the primary principle of the South African state. You know, at one point, colonizers in South Africa realized that you know, emptying the land of its natives is not that feasible and it's not that desirable because we want to exploit the land and we need them as cheap labor. And the establishment of South Africa as a unitary state in 1910, the Union of South Africa, also drew the borders. So the different native, uh, you know, tribes, which were across the border as well in, in other places in, in the South African continent, but, but it was clear that this is where, you know, they are dominated within which borders. And for them, the question of borders wasn't, wasn't that major thing, you know. So that's why, in one way or another, they could suggest a different vision for the future for all those living in these borders, the 1910 borders of the Union of South Africa. Whereas in Israel-Palestine, you know, it's, it's not clear at all. Yeah? In Palestine, it's not clear at all. Like, where is Palestine? Where is Israel? You know, look at this basic nation state. Basically, it's never it's never specified where it is. You know, are the borders of the state? It's everything is fluid. You know, everything is fluid. In terms of demography and labor, you know, Israel managed to maintain its demographic dominance without depending uh, on Palestinian labor, especially after the Second Intifada. So Israel imported foreign labor, you know, from everywhere around 3,000 to 400,000, you know, and in this way was not dependent anymore on, on cheap labor from the West Bank. The only period, if you, if you wish, from 67, the occupation of the West Bank in Gaza to 87, where the Israeli apartheid was less uh, stringent in a way, because there was a huge opportunity to exploit the Palestinian, cheap Palestinian labor, you know, in the West Bank and Gaza and so. So in this sense, the Palestinians became intimate enemies, as Ashish Nandi puts it, the Indian historian, as well as the Israeli historian, Rask Rakotskin uses it, became intimate enemies, yeah? But when the first uprising uh, intifada, you know, broke in 19, late 1987, the, again, Israel was frightened, you know, wow. They are, they are amongst us, yeah, the Palestinians. So we need back to separate them. So that's when the hafrada, which is the Israeli term for, for separateness, for apartheid, started being, you know, much more forceful and, um, and widely applied, if you wish, across all the spheres of life, yeah. So uh, the only period that was uh, actually, there was a hope that this philosophy of life, as Rabin turned it, yeah, of Hafrada, of apartheid, would loosen up and we will find ourselves somewhere else, was between 67 and 87. But after 87, yeah, the, the Palestinians in Gaza were 
barred from entering the West Bank before barred from going to work within Israel proper, you know, in 1991 already. So there was there was the imagination that we should fragment people more and more. So that was a colonial mindset. But in order to enforce it, you need apartheid in terms of rule. So Gazans couldn't go to the West Bank anymore to live or to work or do anything in 1991, but they could go to work in Tel Aviv and everywhere. So with the Oslo Accords, all the separations and fragmentations even grew more and more prevalent. Mm, okay, so I'll, I'll try to kind of um, say something slowly as I want to, first of all, understand if I understand and also for our listeners. So what you're so far showing is that there has been mechanisms of separation of Afrada in place for decades in Palestine, Israel. But it's not quite the same as South Africa. And nonetheless, you call it an apartheid regime because the fact that the comparison to South Africa is actually being challenged is not quite your emphasis. As you actually in your article mention that you do not aim to pass a juridical verdict whether Israel could or should be convicted of the crime of apartheid. In that sense, What you are trying to do is to develop a notion of apartheid that goes beyond the international legal discourse, which is, of course, developed from the South African model of apartheid. In order to kind of um, explain what I've just said, can you maybe tell us more or tell us or explain why the settlers in South Africa needed to legalize apartheid and how is it different in the Israel-Palestine case? Yeah. The settler colonial project, first of the Dutch and then the British, could not eliminate the native presence to a large extent or could not make natives a tiny minority. Even during the apartheid, you know, from 48 till 1994, between 70 and 75 percent of the population were black and, and another 12 percent colored. You know, so the white group was about 12 percent. It's a tiny minority ruling, you know. Um, huge, you know, other majority, so non-white majority. So that's why apartheid as well in South Africa had to be legalized and enforced, you know, with minute laws and ordinances and what have you in order to keep everything in place. Now, in, in Israel-Palestine, the war erupted in 47-48, but, but what is in the background of this war is the partition plan. The partition plan says, okay, there is a Jewish state and an Arab state, The Jewish state will, will occupy or will comprise 56% of the area of the territory between of, of mandatory Palestine and the Arab state 44%. Yeah? Now, they carved the map so that to, to put all the Jews, but 10,000 that existed back then in, in Palestine, in the Jewish state. But, they, but in order to do that, <laughs> 45% you know, minor, Arab minority should have existed. In the Jewish state and the stipulated in the Jewish state stipulated in the partition plan in 47, 45%, yeah, which is not a tiny minority and not a manageable minority. Now the war erupted. Israel ended up controlling de facto 78% of the land, not 56, 22% more than what was according, according to partition plan. And that meant as well more Arabs, yeah. So impossible. To establish a state and not declare and not rule apartheid you know not with a blatant apartheid already from the beginning when you are not when you are not a massive majority what I'm trying to say is that you know when you have a tiny minority like what what ended happening you know by the end of 1948 then you don't have to legislate and institutionalize an apartheid regime in a blatant one yeah 
You don't have to. There are other tools for you. So in order to gain recognition, Israel, you know, international recognition and legitimacy, gave its tiny Palestinian minority that was left citizenship, but directly given citizenship and imposed martial law on them, military rule. So the question about as well occupation, Israel has been using military occupation over the Palestinians since its inception, but for six month period or five months period between January 67, when the actually the martial law or the military rule ended on, on the Palestinian citizens within Israel proper. And it started its occupation of the West Bank and Gaza and Jerusalem in June 6, 1967. So it has been all, it's, it's, it's a tool. Occupation, military occupation is a tool. Is a tool that the settler colonial and settler colonial project has used, yeah? But it has well used apartheid, yeah? But it wasn't legislated and very blatant. So confiscating the lands, confining people uh, to doing certain jobs or not. So it is segregating communities, uh, segregating the the education system, um, separation through administrative categorization, uh, domination by different forces. Okay, it doesn't have to be stated, you know, and specified clearly in in law. And that's the brilliance of, of, of the Israeli apartheid. Sorry to say, but that's real, real brilliance. How to hide your, you know, that you are operating apartheid without legislating it. Yeah? So apartheid became a, c- a crime according to international law. But it's again, you have to define it legally. And what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't have to be a legal duck, you know, in order that the duck walks. Yeah, duck walks without, you know, it having legal wings as well. So that's uh, that's what we've been trying to do, actually, to say that there is a political as well notion of apartheid. Right. So, but you're actually also mentioning in the article that having a political notion of apartheid or a perception of the problem as one of apartheid is also connected to the imaginary of the solution or the solution discourse in Israel-Palestine, which is the one state versus the two state solution. Can you say something about this? The, the, the one state imaginary, yeah? enables us better to see that the problem is apartheid. But this does not mean that the one state is a prescription for solving what is in this apartheid. Yeah, What's in this apartheid is the denial of the Palestinian as a people, as a collective, which has national rights. So the only answer to that is a binational frame of thinking. This is the only answer to that, whereby the Palestinian collective presence rights and existence is asserted and the Israeli Jewish one is retaught. But this is still not enough. We need as well decolonization. So this is, this is, I think, very important. And here the answer, if you wish, the negative for the apartheid reality is binationalism, yeah? Is bringing that which is, you know, denied and oppressed back, which is to say that Palestinians actually are a nation. And, in, and entitled to, to practice collective self-determination as a nation. This is one. This doesn't solve <laughs> the question that Israel is a settler colonial state. Still, you know, for that we need decolonization, as I said before. So wh- what I say is that decolonial binationalism, if I may put it in this formula, is probably the negative image of Israel as a settler colonial state which is operating in an apartheid regime. This is the negative image. 
So without a doubt, you know, an imagination of one state solution, you know, and thinking helps us better to mobilize. And if we mobilize an anti-apartheid struggle, yeah, can be, first of all, more inclusive. So the one state solution certainly helps us with perceiving better to what extent the situation is one of apartheid. But this doesn't generate by itself the solution. The precondition of the two-state solution is apartheid. So the two-state solution just reinforces in, 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 the way, in the way it was formulated, yeah? Let me be concrete, not in general, yeah? In the way it was formulated. Rabin said, you know, the prime minister is a prime minister. And the height of Oslo process, you know, we should adopt hafrada, which is the Israeli term for, for separateness, for apartheid, as I said before, you know, as a philosophy of life. We should take Gaza out of Tel Aviv. So here I would say that this particular uh, discourse of the two-state solution and uh, of its realization has to a large extent hindered the perception of reality as apartheid, despite the increasing and growing realities of apartheid, especially since the Second Intifada. So a discourse of solutions which, let's say, the one-state discourse, yeah, enables us to diagnose reality, just having this horizon, yeah, and also to see reality differently. Because we have to think about certain living together in this. And then when you start thinking about the togetherness, you first of all realize that all the underpinnings of togetherness, you know, what can keep the infrastructure of togetherness has been wiped out in one way or another. And then you realize, yeah, that it is totally apartheid, yeah? So this is this is the point also we, we wanted to, to touch upon, yeah? It is not, it's a, we didn't endorse any form of solution. I think I can speak about also for Ra, if we don't think that the solution talk can lead us anywhere, yeah, with this conflict. So just to slowly round things up, we were actually wondering also if you could explain the term refraction, which appears in the title of the article um, as Palestine-Israel refracted. Um, what is the way that you're using this term? So refraction is a phenomenon coming from physics. It's about the bending of light. It can also happen with sound, you know, water, waves in general. So as, as you know, the light passes through from one transparent substance into another. This, the bending of the light, you know, makes it possible for us to have lenses, magnifying glasses, prisms, also rainbows, yeah? <laughs> so our eyesight, you know, our vision depend upon this bending of light. This is crucial uh, sort of filters through which we, we see reality, we view reality. Now, if you put it through a prism, you put white light through a prism, it, it, it gets bent or refracted, yeah? And the light is separated into constituent wavelength or different lights. And each wavelength of light has a different color and it bends at a different angle. So uh, this is the idea. So if you take the analogy, because apartheid was, was coined and uh, formalized in one way or another in South Africa, separation and segregation and domination within existed also before South Africa, but it was, you know, crystallized in South Africa. It was perfected. It was made sort of an artful you know, in South Africa. So we take it and uh, we, in one way or another, consider it a white light and you pass it through prison, yeah? And then you see how it is refracted. 
So you get the different angles and different things. So what we did is that we refer, we took, we considered the South African case with its four factors and the other enabling conditions of what made South Africa's apartheid the apartheid. We took it as a prism and we passed Palestine-Israel through it. And we could see and discover, you know, all these different angles and, and actually, you know, incongruences of Palestine-Israel's case with South Africa in relation to, to apartheid. So that's the exercise. <laughs> so if you mentioned that this is the exercise, the political exercise, what was your um, uh, political exercise in the sense of, of the article? What was your intention, the political intention? Uh, what did you try to politically achieve in that sense? Yeah, actually our intention, okay, maybe this will be a bit of uh, probably not modest to say, but but our intention is to channel some methodology whereby one can speak about the political notion of apartheid in Palestine-Israel without each time having to go back and compare to South Africa. Because we've tried to show actually how it is, how the Israeli apartheid is, is actually something that has integrity on its own. And it doesn't have to be all the time referred to this. It, it is still an apartheid, but not South African, it's Israeli. So we don't have each time to go and say, yeah, but in South Africa, it was different and so on and so on. So if we consider apartheid as a lens, as a reality and as a perception of reality at the same time, it's a different way of, of understanding and conceptualizing apartheid as a structure of experience, as a political structure of experience. And not just a structure of social life, because this is not really interesting, uh, really, because then you would go and, and, you know, and, and in one way or another, do crude comparisons, yeah? And then the, the import of these comparisons, politically speaking, would be almost irrelevant. So we want to do something with the notion of apartheid, whereby you can see that, you know, you're having some poli insights about politics, yeah, and, and political struggle. So uh, this is, I think, the relevance of the apartheid paradigm, because after all, it deals with governing of populations. Yeah, it's it's about governing. Yeah. So that's why speaking the language of apartheid gives more political traction. Yeah, gives us more of action politically and in the sense uh, here, politics in the sense of the pragmatics of politics. Yeah. And with that, I just want to say thank you so much, Aza. It's been such a great conversation. It's been really an honor to have you with us today. And uh, we really appreciated learning from you and reading your article. Just a reminder that the link to the article will be on our website. So once again, thank you so much for joining us.